John, in this passage, puts together things that we would not normally set against one another. And I, I want to bring this out. First of all, he says that God is not available to sight, but he is available in love. Which is an interesting juxtaposition, but remember our false teachers here, I think are wanting to see God. I think that we could characterize Gnostic experiential ecstatic you know, pursuit as a kind of visual uh, attainment. We have the equation of love in, with John. He says, if you love, you know God. And earlier, if you, you know, if you love, you keep his commandment. So think of those three things together. And we have the reverse of this, that insisting on knowing God through sight seems to exclude love and can be equated with lawlessness. And at the same time, there is this picture of mutual Love and John is using the word agape love, which probably this is part of the confusion here because our English word doesn't really capture it, does it? The English word just sort of means everything. Uh, it, it it is uh, uh, not a very specific word like the word agape, and so part of the meaning of what John is saying, I think, is to be found in the special definition that he has already worked out in the gospel for this agape love. But the idea here is that uh, loving the brethren on the part of those who would see God seems to be excluded. That's interesting, isn't it? So the pursuit of God on the basis of sight apparently forecloses the idea that God makes himself available through love. The insistence on knowing, to know on the basis, you know, what is sight? An objectified seeing, uh, which constitutes, I think, a kind of knowledge, precludes loving. And so what I want to answer is, why? Why would that be the case? And the answer is, I think, immediately that we can begin to run this down, and I'll make it more complicated, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, is that the characteristics of knowing through sight, you know, we can talk about comparing the auditory and the visual, but sight is objectifying. That is, we see objects, we see things. Uh, You can talk about seeing people, but the way that you know a person is not primarily visual. Uh, sight reduces things then to, it, by objectifying, it means that we would tend to reduce things to their material form. If they're a person, or if they're God, if you're trying to see God, even though you would acknowledge that God can't be seen, the impetus is still in some way to make of God uh, a kind of materiality. Now, what I'm saying here may, you know, uh, among the Gnostics, it may be that they well know, you know, as in a uh, Platonic understanding, that God is completely transcendent. So think here of the 
ontological argument. Anselm's going to pray that he can see God, and when he sees nothing, he's going to say, I've seen God. So it's still the same impetus, I think, oh, you're going to see, but what you see is ultimately a materialized, reified nothing. Maybe that was too complicated. Uh, sight is static. It, do, it's, you know, uh, it doesn't do anything. If we take a picture of the group, we've got a nice picture. If we take an instantaneous recording, we just got nonsense. So uh, it is sight is alienating. That is, you can't see, you know, you can't turn around and see yourself. Which, by the way, is the very thing that Anselm is describing as wanting to do in his doctrine of why Christ died. He wants to become self-identical with himself. There is a way of, ta of using language in the metaphor of sight. The seeing may allow for language, but language or words will, in this metaphor, function through the metaphor of the mind's eye. And in, uh, there's, Martin Jay has written a whole book describing the history of Western thought from the Greeks on as taking place in a singular metaphor, the mind's eye. Remember that historically the church then absorbed Platonic and Aristotelian thought. And I think that part of the absorption then is a departure from a biblical metaphor uh, that is not focused on sight but upon believing, a different kind of believing. And of course the ultimate thing here is God is a person, not an object. So to try to see God, it's the wrong mode. You can't see God. The other thing John in this passage says, God is spirit. You can't see a spirit. And so the way that you come to know a person is uh, through, through language, through, through talking to them. Part of the issue here that, you know, in the gospel that I think is getting in the way of, you know, the impetus behind seeing is human will or the will to know creates a condition in, in which God cannot be received because our will is the primary thing. Uh, it is only through believing that the children of God are born. And John is using the language of new birth here. So remember the two things that we're talking about, the impetus to see God, those who are not part of the community of fellowship. Ultimately what John is describing is two forms of human subjectivity, two kinds of people. So believing enables an alternative knowing on the basis of agape love. Let me say that again. I'll say it backward. Agape love is the foundation of an alternative knowing. Right? That's what he's, that's what he's ultimately describing. But we could say agape is also the basis of an alternative subjectivity. We'll, I'll run that down here for you. And when we say agape, let's not think you know, English love, but th let's think of something quite specific. And even the Greek, you know, is not adequate here in that it's probably only in the life of Christ that agape gets defined in and through the Christ, uh, the, the, rather than through the cross of Christ, in and through self-sacrificial love, 
which is creative of a community. So the cross and the kingdom then, the cross enables the kingdom community. And John is using that same language in both the gospel and the epistle. So how does the cross, you know, it's another, I'm asking a lot of questions here and I'll hopefully answer. How does the cross enable love? You know, can you, could you run that down for me? And how is this act of love, uh, his, God's loving us, how is this an enabling of our love? I mean, an immediate uh, answer to the question, but I don't think the complete answer, is that in the cross of Christ there is the model of self-sacrificial love. That's part of the answer, right? That here is the way that you love, you lay down your life for the brethren. But it's more than that in that this, in a, this love in, is, is the change of a human subject. You know, that if you have agape love, you're born of God. You become part of the family of God. And on the other hand, uh, the other form of knowing, the other form, I, I'm going to say this, and if you want to raise your hand and say that can't be right, but I'm extrapolating here, one form of the subject is incapable, one form of human subjectivity is incapable of agape love. Another form of human subjectivity, agape love is made possible. So this must be the key ingredient to this being born again or this alternative person, right? Whatever this, you know, love is, this is the difference. And this is John saying the marker of a child of God, somebody who knows God. For John, this is definitive. He doesn't need to qualify this. He doesn't need to say anything else. He says, everyone who loves has been born of God. We could talk about this in a Pauline sense. You know, Paul talks about the, uh, the shift from the body of death in baptism that we've, uh, and the joining to the body of Christ. John's using very similar language. We've just talked about the vine and the branches. And even in this passage, he talks about abiding in Christ, being joined to the body of Christ. And so the subject, you know, of the Gnostics, what have they joined themselves to? John says they abide in death. Paul, used similar, Paul uses similar language. He talks about the body of death. They've joined themselves to death. And the subject of Christ has been joined to the ontological reality of God in Christ. And I'm using the language here of metaf- you know, an ontological reality. That is that what we believe about baptism or what we believe about becoming a Christian or being born again, however you're going to describe it, is that this is a different kind of ontological reality. And we can describe that one is joined to death in Christ, the other is joined, or one is joined to life, you didn't stop me, in Christ, and the other is joined to death. So the Gnostics would know God on the basis of a kind of first order order experiential knowing, right? Um, In uh, Martin Jay's, the name of the book is Downcast Eyes. and he contends that the Platonic thought taken up into Western philosophy meant this thought was captured then by the visual metaphor. I want to state it quite, I want to state it a little bit differently. I think that the visual metaphor is universal from the fall of man. 
And you can trace it philosophically, that's what he's done, just trace it through Western philosophical thought, and say, wait a minute, it's always the same metaphor, but what I'd say, yeah, that metaphor is the way that man, the, the fall of man is identifiable. Think here of Genesis 3, you know, that the shift is from obeying God, listening to God, to what John, I think John is making a reference to Genesis 3 when he talks about the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That just sounds like right out of Genesis 3, right? That's the shift. It's a shift from the auditory, privileging the auditory, privileging God's word, to privileging the visual or the spectral uh, and seeing is believing kind of understanding. So, uh, you know, knowing, uh, it, it, this is John, 1 John 2.16. Paul does the same thing, by the way. John and Paul on this topic bring together this group of terms. They, first of all, they both posit an alternative kind of knowing on the basis of agape love. And I think this is unique to John and Paul. I think you could find it elsewhere. It's there in Acts. And, but I, I think that they work it out most completely. This is N.T. Wright. Ordinary human wisdom, ordinary human knowledge is not just canceled. It is taken up into something at one level similar and at another level radically different. Paul's name for the new something is agape love. He's going to say, in other words, this is an alternative knowing. Paul works this out in several places. Uh, you know, in Colossians 2, 8 to 10, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So he's pitting human philosophy, human wisdom, and Christ as a way of knowing. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. Right before this, in 2, 2 to 3, he's already given us the alternative. Having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Having been knit together in agape, knit together in love, this constitutes a deep wisdom and knowledge that displaces, I don't know if displaces, you know, this is N.T. Wright's point here, it's not exactly that it displaces human knowledge, but in some way it completes it or it, it fills it in. You know, it's not that everybody is, you know, even a Hindu knows how to cross the street. Uh, that everybody knows something, but what he's talking about is this human subjectivity and the nature of this human subject. What do you think he meant by it, in some ways it's similar, in some ways completely alternative? Didn't he say that? He did say that and I wished he had said more <laughs> because he didn't explain it, But I, so I'm extrapolating or what the way that I would explain it. Okay. If you 
you know, if you think here in terms of psychology or psychotherapy, does Slavoj Žižek and Jacques Lacan and Sigmund Freud, do they have things to say about the human mind that we could learn from? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But do they do they have the cure for the human disease? Mm-hmm. I think not. In other words, what they're going to do in each instance is give us the problem and imagine that telling us the problem in some way is the cure. Mm-hmm. Quite literally, this is this is a Lacanian. You could do the same thing in sociology. You know, do do we by observing human societies understand the inner workings of people groups and you know the oh absolutely. But in a sociological perspective, is there the sense that you have a resolution to the human sociological predicament? And I think you could just go right on through that there is uh, something, and, and this is my point with the, the, the Bible, we're not to use the Bible as an isolated, you know, light that we just stare at it in isolation, but we're u- to use the Bible as a lens to apprehend the world. So we take things in, we understand them through Scripture. And so that would be the sense that we absolutely need to, to study something other than the Bible. We need to know history and philosophy and psychology. and We need to have a broad-based understanding because to, I think, understand the human condition, we're taking the lens of Scripture and apprehending those systems of study through Scripture. Mm-hmm. Did, I, did I hit it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I've done this illustration, so I think it is a kind of a neat illustration of the idol and the idolater. That the literal word there is for is the word image, right? Selim. And the image is removed from the idolater. In the same way that I think we could, I'm I'm explaining. Okay, what's the why is it? that knowing visually is disruptive to agape love. Because I think that the way in which we would know, know ourselves and know the world outside of Christ, is on the order of a dynamic like an idolatrous religion. That is, the object and you know the idolater are removed from one another, what is the idol representative of? It's the image, your image. It's the I, it's the ego. That's precisely the way that Paul talks about himself in Romans 7. He's the, he's the I, but he's also the, the, you know, the mind, and he describes the split between two things. When we talk about loving in English. I think that, you know, the idea of I'm okay, you're okay, you've got to learn to love yourself, kind of the pop psychology loving. I think what's being recommended is this alienated, you know, kind of attempt to attain the self through an objectification of the self. That is, knowing the world and knowing ourselves through a visual 
understanding is already alienating. You can't do it. You can't coordinate those two things. Paul is going to talk about this alienation in a three-part way. That is, the I is alienated from the law, or the, the law I know in my mind, and he's alienated from his body. He's saying, he talks about it as the body of death. Uh, and so the I do what I don't want to do. So he, he, the, there's too, too many eyes. There's the eye that's his body, that he says it's no longer I that do, am doing it, but it's sin within me. There's the eye that is the law of the mind, uh, and he can't coordinate the mind and the body, you know, the, the, the three parts. You could describe the attempt to do that as a kind of love. But that's precisely what agape love is not. Because the way that John or Jesus is going to identify agape in John, the way that Paul is going to identify agape in Romans, is that it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives within me. It's no longer you know, uh, uh, a self-interested kind of love, I guess you could call what Peter would do for Jesus when he struck off the ear of Malchus, right? He was willing to die for love. But that's not agape. And so I think that agape is a, agape is a very specific thing in which this dynamic of you know, the fallen subject is undone. I have been crucified, Paul says. That's the way I believe that the death of Christ enables us to love in an, uh, in a, an agape love because the way in which we're joined to Christ in baptism is that we die with him. And the imagery there in Romans 6 is that we have now been joined to the body of Christ. And where before, Paul, or, or right after that in chapter 7, Paul's going to say, I'm not even joined to my own body. I can't get a handle on me. But how do you get a handle on me? You know, how, do we, how do we access ourselves? I think through being joined to Christ. Being, through the body of Christ, we also then have access to ourselves. Outside of the body of Christ, we don't have access to, even to ourselves because there ain't nobody there. You can't get a handle. You can't love yourself, uh, you know, in in the way that Anselm of Canterbury is going to picture it, becoming uh, self, uh, you know, identical. So another way of saying this is that and this, by the way, is the limit to your question and the limit of human psychology. Lacan and Zizek read Romans 7. They read this dynamic we're talking about in John. They recognize the visual metaphor, everything I've just said. Think of the way that Lacan, he names the, uh, the ego, the imaginary, imaging, seeing. He's saying you come to this imaging, this self-imaging, on a visual metaphor. And this stands over and against language or, or law. But the point is that this dynamic, this tension between the law, between 
the I in a Lacanian or Freudian understanding, and I think in a Pauline understanding, is a necessary part of human subjectivity, and then I'll add for Paul, outside of Christ. But in, in, a, in a secular psychological understanding, Paul, John, are just describing the reality of the human subject. That we, in some way, are caught up in this uh, alienating visual gestalt. So, uh, so the, the answer for the secular world is just to acknowledge that? Yes, that you've hit upon something. And they recognize, you know, Lacan gives us a reading of Romans 7, Zizek gives us a reading of Romans 7 and say, aha, there's the answer. But I think when we read Romans 7, or we read, you know, John's doing the same thing, we don't say, aha, there's the answer. We say, aha, there's the problem. Now, I'm leaving some Christians behind at this point. And I'm see, leaving a whole branch of branches of Christianity behind, because a lot of Christians read the problem and imagine that's the answer. They read Romans seven, and they say, "Oh, here's the way to be a Christian." They probably wouldn't say it's a good thing, but they would just say there's not really a way out of it. Yeah, they they would say this agonistic struggle with sin. That's just how it is. That's just how it is. But when we all get to heaven. Can't wait. Praise the Lord. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, this is, I, I, I don't mean to pick on Methodism, but Methodism seems to, to um, do the, the whole struggle thing. Yeah. Uh, many, many forms of Christianity. It's all about the struggle. So that it literally drives you crazy. The struggle's not the answer. The struggle's the problem. You don't engage an intense struggle with sin to resolve the problem of sin. But sometimes it seems like if you're completely oblivious to the struggle in the first place, that you might need to at least recognize the problem. So it's like part of the... I don't know. It yeah. seems like it sometimes is like it's good that you're here, you just shouldn't stay here. But I don't know if that's a good thing to tell people. Yeah, I think I think that, that what I we've just done tonight, you can move from Romans seven to Romans eight. You can remove remove from a kind of visual agonistic knowing to loving God, loving the neighbor. In other words, John is describing, he's saying don't pursue God whom you have not seen as if you can step on your neighbor whom you have seen to get there. He's saying the way that you're going to get to God is in and through the neighbor. The, the way that he describes it in, in the gospel is the way that you believe in, and you're going to see the glory of God is in and through the incarnation of Christ. And we could talk about, in a sense, the incarnation and continuing uh, in and through the church, the body of Christ. If you didn't, that could be heretical if you pushed that too much. But 
Uh, let me state it in a strange way. Uh, maybe this is offensive to you. Jacques Lacan says there is no sexual relationship. Now that's a, that's an interesting thing, but you see what I think he's saying. He's saying what Paul is saying. You can't coordinate your body with your mind. Therefore, how do you have a relationship? Well, you have a relationship with your whole self. You can't have a, a sexual relationship because sexual is bodily; it's embodied. Relationship is, you know, we could talk talk about it being soulish or spiritual or. He's just saying that as a permanent condition. He's, there, he, there's no answer to that. He's just describing the human condition. There is no sexual relationship. Get over it. Like they don't go together? Is that what they don't go together. You can't do those two things together. You can't embody love. But what we're, what we're reading about here is an embodied love. Which, not to get too graphic about it, but Paul is, you know, the New Testament is going to use sexual imagery, marriage imagery, to say that, you know, it's a great mystery where two, you know, a man a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. This is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. There is a relationship that is embodied. This embodied relationship is to be had in Christ. Um, think here of Paul's picture in Romans 7, 1-6. He's just des described being joined to the body of Christ. But then in 7, 1-6, do you remember this illustration? There is a woman who, you know, if the woman's husband is dead and she consorts with another man, no problem. But if she consorts with another man and her husband is alive, it's adultery. But notice this woman. She's defined in every way by the law. Whatever she does, consorting, you know. And of course what, she, what he's describing is that some of us are completely defined by the law. There is a human subjectivity that has itself in its orientation to the law. For, the Paul, for Paul, the law is everything outside of Christ. Not the Mosaic law, not the law given from God, but our perversion of that law. So that, you know, there's this kind of, if you think of the description of, uh, you know, the alienated self, that can you, can love in that understanding dictate be dictated by the law can law dictate love i think our imp, our in our instinct is to answer that question no because when i love you know woody allen marries his 14 year old stepdaughter and says well i fell in love you know the 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 movement of the heart is a mystery <laughs> something wrong with his heart yeah. it's almost like and that's the way Paul's describing it I think is that it's almost like the, the conflict the alienation from the law is definitive of this I 
that you need the law and you need transgression. That's sin, right? So what we're describing is a situation in which law and love can be brought together. In other words, what's the greatest commandment? Well, it's the command, and that's what John is working out here. He's just done that with the idea of the greatest commandment. So, uh, so you know, this is Zizek. Even the possibility, he's commenting on 7, 1 to 6, even the possibility that she would love another arises in Paul's description is an experience requiring the law. Her notion that she is loved by her consort is in turn to imagine that deep within her is some precious treasure that can only be loved and cannot be submitted to the rule of law. I think we all have been there. We all know about that. And that's the illicit, transgressive uh, uh, kind of love. I think that's the Adam, you know, Genesis 3 kind of love. Uh, it's the, you know, it's, you, you've heard me say that it's in Genesis 3 where Adam says, I, I ran, I hid, I was afraid. And Paul is repeating the positing of this ego, this I. The, as long as the I is alive, you cannot do agape love. Because the very construct of the I is such that the ego, the I, is an obstacle to the very nature, the very definition of agape love. And the way you move out of the I, not, and don't think just selfishness or, you know, don't get that, but the idea here, we're talking about the dynamic of a human subject. The way you get there to agape love is your, you change up subjectivity. Um, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Uh, and of course, the I can be crucified, and it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt you because that's not who you are. I'll do. Let me do just a. I'm, I actually haven't gotten to the main thing, but. Uh, uh, Freud describes this uh, he calls this what I, uh, I think what John and Paul are describing as primary narcissism in which they're you know think you know the story of narcissus he sees his image in the water and falls in love with himself um, and the idea is there's an investment of libido in the ego that is the ego is taken as an object of desire a visual object of desire. Lacan's mirror stage describes the same thing. The child sees its image in the mirror and would obtain himself as an image. But you can't obtain yourself as an image. I think that's Paul's, you know, Paul actually uses the language of a mirror in 1 Corinthians that now we see in a mirror, you know. In, I think that's the same language in Romans 7. He's describing this imaging. He's using the word blepo, visual, a kind of visual metaphor. As long as I would obtain myself in the mind's eye through sight, there is this alienating subject that cannot attain itself. It's narcissism. Um, and so there's an erotic element, but it's not really eroticism. You know, is is idolatry really erotic? No, it's it's there is no sexual relationship. 
You can never obtain the idol. Uh, there is only a kind of, there, there in fact is a kind of aggressivity here towards, you know, you would, how do, you know, the, the impetus is to take the two things and make them one. So this is the masochism. This is the masochistic element in religion. You would take, you know, the punishing superego or the punishing law and the I that ultimately the one would be absorbed in the other in and through a suffering, punishing kind of relationship. Uh, let me go to John a little bit, uh, in which he's in the gospel equating, you know, normally we say knowing is, pri- you know, has primacy, and then comes believing. I think John reverses that. Or we might say, seeing is believing. What John is going to say, believing is seeing. And he does this again and again with the miracles of Christ. Um, only the one, you know, he talks about at the beginning of John, only the one who has ascended to heaven and can, can fully reveal heavenly things, this is the one that came down from heaven. And then he says, you know, that you've beheld Jesus' glory in the events of his ministry. But did everybody who saw the miracles of Jesus behold the glory of God? And John's point is, well, no. That only those who had the eyes of faith. The same event falls either on blind eyes or on those eyes that can see the glory of God. And, you know, he'll even use the language of theophany. Uh, He's actually referencing... Uh, Isaiah and Exodus uh, throughout we've those of you who have done the Gospel of John he does this in an explicit way that he's referencing these theophanies and showing here is the true appearance of God uh, but uh, uh, not all who witnessed them interpreted them as being his glory so for John it is not for knowing but for believing, you know, this is the end of the gospel, John 20. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then believing, you may have life in his name. John equates believing, life, love, love. You know, in, in the chapter, the verses we just read, he says, God is spirit. God is love. I don't know, I think there's only one other place in the Bible that it says God is. Do you know the other place? It's actually the frightening place. God is a consuming fire in Hebrews and Deuteronomy. So the, the whole point is to switch up, to reconstitute the human subject in which knowing is not primary because knowing as primary is seeing but believing is primary and on the basis of believing we can see jesus does a miracle and they don't see it they don't understand it they don't apprehend they just want more food they they want him to do more of those because they need healing or they need and they uh, you know see the glory of god you have to see believe who christ is and so I think all of that is part of the shift. You know, you almost need the gospel to read First John. Because it's in the gospel, I think, 
as we've talked before, that he gives us the definition of agape love, that he works this out in some detail, uh, that it is the abiding in Christ, it is the self-sacrificial love. And so the contrast, what I've just described to you, there's a contrast between knowing and believing. What is the fall of man? Man would know good and evil and be like God. What is the redemption of man? Man would believe Christ and on that basis know God. And so it's a reversal that is inclusive of all that we are. Uh, Let's read some from John. I just watch face face and I can judge how much more I should say. I thought that was <laughs> Caitlin, you want to read the first one for us? Yeah. Just the first verse? Yeah, well we'll take a little chunk. Then you can explain it. (laughs) Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So the Gnostics would say the way you know God has nothing to do with love. It has nothing to do with the fellowship. It has everything to do with knowing in a private sense, an ecstatic experience, a, a secret knowledge. Uh... But John is equating, he says, you know God if you love. And it doesn't, you know, there's no qualifications here. Um, And of course, the word he's using is agape. He's using this Christ-like love. He's using this very specific love that I think, as I've described it, is already a change of the human subject. That that's the reason that these two things can be equated. So if you have agape, you've been born of God. So the, every time he uses love, basically in this book, is agape. Yeah, the the beloved let us one another. Another, it's a, he uses the term. It's there in both words. I've forgotten the Greek, but it's agape or, you know, and two forms of the word agape. Okay. Which uh, in Greek is not necessarily. You know, you can't just say agape and everybody in, in, in just knows that what that means because it's Greek. What I'm saying is, no, we know what that means because of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And our word is almost useless. Because yeah. it just doesn't, I don't know it what it, it, yeah, it means too much. Or it, pizza. Yeah, I love pizza. Or, uh, it just doesn't, uh, it I, you know, you you fall into this thing. You get sick with this thing. You, you know, it, so it it we almost need to get rid of the word. So the only way to obtain agape is through baptism, and then we get rid of the ego. Um, so if we are going to talk to a person of a different religion, will we say that they have any love? Then. Does my question make any sense? No, yours is a wonderful question that is probably beyond my capabilities to answer. (laughs) No, I'm no facetiousness. That's just a wonderful question. And and I'm treading on dangerous ground 
But let me go ahead and tread on the dangerous ground. I think that uh, what John is saying, what Paul is saying, that apart from the love of Christ, the agape love of Christ that we have in and through being joined to Christ, that agape love is not available to us. Now, are people able to lay down their lives in some fashion? Are people able to make sacrifices? Yes, they are, but I think that that the what we're describing is not, it, it is a, an alternative form of subjectivity that comes about in and through the body of Christ. That's just a kind of faith statement that I have. Uh, you know, you could probably say, well, wait a minute, I heard about this Eskimo up in Alaska that, you know, he, his grandma got sent out in the ice, and I don't, you know, you could... Uh, that you could come up with illustrations, but what I'm just saying is that from what my understanding of the New Testament is that agape love is available to us only in Christ. When I, in N.T. Wright's quote, that's what I was kind of thinking is it's similar but also very completely an alternative too. And this might not have been what he was talking about, but that's, you know, like there's love that, or a solution in general to a problem, whatever, that looks real similar to the the love or this, you know, solution here, but at the same time, it's it's not the same, because, and like you said, it's a, it's a different foundation, although the, I don't know. It might end up looking similar, but that doesn't mean. Yeah, I mean, you can think even Paul's, you know, sermon on the Areopagus, he takes up human knowing. In him we live and move and have our being. That's the poets, you know, the the pagan poets have said that. Paul says, that's right. Now let me run that down for you. I notice this altar, you know, to the unknown God. Okay, at least you know you don't know him. Let's start with that. And so it is never uh, simply, oh, you're completely without the capacity or you're without anything. But we can begin where you are and fulfill that, complete that. And I'd say that's true with agape love. I mean, I've met some people that, you know, quite amazing Buddhists. Shintoists. I don't know if that would even, you know, in Japan or other places. But I think uh, that they may be well on their way to, you know, entering in very close to the kingdom of God. But I think that to complete any human being, uh, to arrive at this being born of God, I think there's only one way to do it. Sometimes, too, like when you think of humanitarians, maybe that's kind of how I think of. It's like, oh, you know, they're they will sacrifice their life for a cause necessarily, but um, maybe the difference between agape love and Christ is that it's a holistic thing. So maybe you know you could you could 
be dedicated to this cause, it's really good, you know, for an oppressed people group or something. But you might beat your wife or your, you know, or not you know, maybe be dedicated to it. It just isn't a holistic thing. It right. doesn't take into account your entire life. And I think Austin, you know, the, your your question is, and I'm and talking to Maisie too here that that if somebody is that close to the kingdom and then they find out about it, well, they say, "Why didn't anybody tell me this?" You know, which is often people's reaction. You know, I never heard this before. Wish somebody told me. So I I yeah I think that we do need to embrace the good that is there. Even if it's the Grateful Dead. <laughs> it's a wonderful feeling of community, you know, and being a deadhead, I guess. Sharon, you want to read the next one? Anyone yeah. who does not love does not know God because God is love. Anyone who does not agape does not know God because God is agape. Right? It's the most definitive statement in the New Testament. And of course, he, what he's saying is, you, you heretics, you Gnostics, you people who are saying you're the special Christians, uh, you don't know God. Because God is to be found in the fellowship of the saints. It's manifest among us. It's it's not this thing you do in your head, right? Love is by definition a plurality of persons. The, you know, the pop psychology thing is, well, you've got to learn to love yourself. And then you, well, man, if that's true, I'd just spend the rest of my life learning to love myself. Because yeah. you're not going to master that. Because the very nature of that is frustration. The very nature of that is an impossibility. You are an obstacle in the sense of the eye. And, and I, I hope you don't, again, I, I, don't, I don't mean what the pipes, pop psychologists mean by that. You know, oh, you've got you to gotta quit doing this or that. No, you've got to quit being this or that. Maisie, you want to do nine? In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God had, has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Um, the, the love of God is made manifest through Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Uh, that God loved us and then enabled us to love one another. Uh, and the, the picture, of course, this is a fulfillment of the gospel picture of agape. Um, that no one has ever seen God, John says here, he says in the gospel, except the one who's come from the Heavenly Father. If you've seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. You can't see God, he says. He's talking to people that want to see God. And the, in the history of Christianity, this is the impetus behind you know, the beatific vision. That Thomas Aquinas wants to see God. 
And there's a whole theological drive. But John says, don't imagine that you can see God in some future realm. You know, Maybe there is that aspect. But where do you see God? You see God in Christ. It's not when do you see God, it's where you see him in Christ. Um, the, 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 you know, this is also the whole argument, Anselm's ontological argument and why a God-man, it's all in a visual metaphor. He begins the ontological argument, God, I pray that I might see you. At the end of the argument, he says, God, I've seen you. What have I seen? And everything he describes is static, darkness, nothingness. In other words, he's not seen any person, he's only seen an absence. I think you you know, normally we would say that's death. <laughs> but he calls that God. And I think that's the, the confusion. So uh, verse ten. David, can you read down? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And, you know, the, the question here, what sh- how should we translate this? Maybe the atonement for our sins. Uh, the And what is the atonement for our sins? We've just described it. He's enabled us to be at one with God through agape love. In other words, we don't need to do any more in defining atonement than John has just done. What is it? What the, the, the English word at one, you know, we are at one with. We abide in God. That is really what that word means. Uh, and it has nothing to do with uh, God needed to, to to hurt someone so he could get his anger out of his system. And then Anselm of Canterbury runs that down in a visual metaphor. And the visual metaphor is one that's totally has to do with human will. There's a gap in the will and you're not able to be self-identical with yourself. Why did Christ die? So that you might see your own image in the mirror of your mind. That's what he says. He's recommending sin to us, I believe, and that Jesus died to accomplish the sinful project project of human desire. You know, maybe if I'm wrong, I should be struck with lightning at this point. But I think the, the, the predominant doctrine of the atonement is not atonement at all, but it's pagan religion under the auspices of, you know, Christianity. I'm just talking about the doctrine of divine satisfaction. He works that out over over a long, and the whole thing has to do with human will. There's a gap in the will, being self-identical with the self. That is, I... You know, God rightly remembers himself in the mirror of his mind. He's using, he's using the exact imagery of mirrors, image, seeing. And Christ enables, his death enables us to will rightly so that we can capture our own image in our minds. Any community there, any agape love, any 
you know, any, no, there's not, that nothing to do with that. And unfortunately, there is a whole understanding of who Christ is that has nothing to do with agape love. Can you be a Christian and not have agape love? John says no. Sorry. <laughs> Chris, you want to do the next one for us? Dear friends, if this is the way God loved us, we must also love each other. So that he's going to equate the, the two things. You can love your neighbor whom you have seen. You can't, you know, can you hate your neighbor whom you see and love God whom you've not seen? So he, he does bring us back to vision. The vision is involved, but uh, we love one another. And that experience of a koinonia fellowship in which the body of Christ and John is focused here on the fellowship he, you know there is the love of the enemy but that's not what he's talking about at this point he's talking about this deep agape love that we experience in the uh, in the body of Christ and then the finish the thought Evan verse 12 no one has seen God at any time we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Is there something better than seeing God? Or should we just pursue the beatific vision? After all, didn't Christ continually behold the Father so that he did not need faith, he did not need belief, he just continually beheld the Father. And isn't Christ our model so that we don't need faith? We just need to behold the Father as the Son did. Amen. I'm doing Thomas Aquinas. Philippians doesn't say that. <laughs> what does Philippians say? That he didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped. And it goes right into the, and what is he picturing? He made himself nothing. Uh, and I think the way he did that is to, he's referencing the crucifixion. That he's referencing the death. So that this is the difference between faith in Christ and faith of Christ. Is this cross a spectacle for us to behold? Or is it a model for us to imitate? I think that for much of Christianity, the cross is a spectacle, a visual icon. Christ died so that we don't have to. And faith in Christ is the, uh, one way of expressing that branch of Christianity. But what we are being says here is, love one another as he loved us. That's the faith of Christ. In other words, we duplicate it, we model it. Or he modeled it and we follow his what he's modeled. So it's not a it's not a spectacle, but the cross is a model. And in that way we abide he abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That is this thing grows. It uh there's a telos to it. Uh it, it is a, a process. Jake can you read 13? By this we know that we abide in him, he in us, 
because he has given us of his spirit. And Paul and John will do the same thing. You want the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, well, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, it, it is directly connected to agape love. When Paul talks about belief, the Spirit, and agape, uh, it's the same group of terms that John will use. Uh, and so, how do you know you have the Holy Spirit? Or what is, you know, well, I think it's in and through the fellowship of the saints, that it's through, through agape. How do you know you don't have, well, we won't go there. But it probably has something to do with hatred. It probably has something to do with disfellowshipping. It probably has something to do with exclusion. It probably has something to do with an in-your-head kind of Christianity. It probably has something to do with a Christianity bent upon wrath and anger and propitiation rather than real world abiding in. And Michael, you want to read 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. How does Jesus save the world? (laughs) We just did it, right? We just did it. Because you're not saved. What does it mean to be saved? To enter into this fellowship, to enter into this agape love. It's not, oh, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. No, it's I'm going to join the fellowship of the saints in the church right now. And this kingdom of God that I've joined is the place that God dwells and that when heaven and earth meet, it will be that kingdom that is fulfilled. So I don't have to wait to join this kingdom. I don't have to wait to die. Um, But Jesus is the Savior and what he saved us from is the loss or lack of agape, right? No agape, no salvation. And uh, Jamie, you want to do the last verse? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So how do you get there? Well, the Gnostics would go right to heaven. But John would have us go through the incarnate Christ. That God has come in the flesh and that we come to God not on the basis of our disembodiment but on the basis of being embodied in Christ. There is a relationship, an embodied relationship uh, because Christ is incarnate. We can be incarnate too. Right? That's our problem. We tend toward disincarnateness. We tend toward departure. Uh, There is no sexual relationship outside of Christ. Is that too vulgar? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That is, there is a fully embodied relationship to be had in Christ that we experience in the fellowship. I didn't get graphic. I could have gotten graphic. Uh, you know the whole scope of philia, the love of looking. Uh, well, I won't. I won't get it. But uh, you're dealing with it in the dorms continually. They're plagued with scope of philia. 
it is an idolatrous sort of problem that is there in the love of the pornographic. Same, same drive. Caught up in the visual, you know, the, 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 to take it in. You can never get enough. Uh, you know, you think of idolatry, idolatrous religion. I'll move on, Faith. I'm not, I'm not dwelling there. Remember the big Buddha they built near us in Scuba? Uh, you could go inside of it. I think there are even toilets in the feet of the Buddha. I always wondered how, how they worked that out theologically. So the spectacle was the thing. The spectacle's the thing in idolatry. The bigger, the better. But that's not what we're into. We're not into the spectacle. We're not into the, the to scopophilia. All right, any comments, questions? I guess when we think about propitiation, that fancy word, uh, would it be wrong to view it as the mercy seat of Christ and like that his blood, that his blood is on the mercy seat and that or that's the wrong imagery. Yeah, the 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 picture of of Old Testament sacrifices. I think I did. We did a lecture on this a while back. Uh, but what, you know, what is the sacrifice? Is it that the the dead God wants dead animal blood? No. But what is what does the sacrifice represent? The the thing that the sacrifice represents and the blood represents is life. And so the sacrifice is a dedication of a life to God. God doesn't want dead people. He wants living sacrifices. And that's what we is fulfilled. You know, Paul says that we are the living sacrifice. And so Christ's sacrifice is the end of those sort of shadow type sacrifices because here is the true dedication here is the way in which we truly give our lives to God so we uh, the we obtain the mercy of God we attain oneness with God we enter you know the writer of Hebrews describes that we've entered into the holy of holies on the basis of the life of Christ we've been joined you know through his life, death, and resurrection to him, and therefore we've entered in. So it's a what I'm describing is a kind of a shift, even in the understanding of the Old Testament sacrifices. I think that we've misunderstood those, we've misread those sacrifices. They're not just more pagan sacrifices. Every pagan religion, and I think I can say every, I think that every religion even if it doesn't in, in a contemporary setting, is had sacrifices. Why did they sacrifice? Well, in some way, for the propitiation. The gods are angry and they need blood. But that's not what's happening in the Jewish sacrifices. And so unfortunately we get Anselm of Canterbury or we get uh, John Calvin and they give us this kind of pagan reading and then we go back and read the Old Testament under that same pagan understanding. But the, what actually the Old Testament is already a departure from pagan sacrifice. Sacrifice is universal. Everybody's sacrificing. 
and many religions, if not most, and th these two things, by the way, are, are graphic sexual imagery in idolatry and human sacrifices, those are directly connected. The, uh, the, you know, the exponential desire that in which people would ultimately, that's Ezekiel's picture, ultimately that desire is all-consuming. It really is not about sexuality. It's about human desire. And it is one that would ultimately take the lives, you know, that's, that's where human sacrifice. That was never what was being done in uh, Old Testament sacrifices. So we need to get straight on what Christ did. But I think once we do that, then we can go back and see, well, that wasn't what the Jews were doing. So, you know, Jeremiah says that, it, it even says it so strong that God doesn't desire sacrifice. In fact, God never desired sacrifice. He doesn't desire the blood of bulls and goats. You know, let mercy and righteousness and justice flow down like, you know, water. That's what God wanted. And I believe the Old Testament sacrifices were already pointing in that direction. Certainly the prophets were. Yours is a, is a big question, Austin. Well, because I'm just thinking about the book of Hebrews and it says... Without the blood, there is uh, there is no life, regardless. And I know the blood of Christ cleanses us of our sins, but I'm just trying to get a right interpretation of what blood, how the blood is uh, applied on us, or whatever. Like you know, because if the blood of Christ is our propitiation, it should give us new life. Um, just, it's, it's a big concept so it's well, hard to Jesus says eat my body eat my flesh and drink my blood I think we just had some blood and body of Christ earlier what were you yeah, doing? <laughs> that is the way that we do that is not through cannibalism the way that we participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is through the koinonia fellowship, through the Lord's Supper, through the celebration of the life of Christ. And so we are participants in the life of Christ. I mean, I think that's what he actually meant. So it's not, oh, drink my blood, but what he means, you know, what the, the implication of that is, partake, you know, partake of my life, abide in me, I'll abide in you. The language of John is, I think, what the metaphor. John is, by the way, the one where we have the graphic, eat my flesh, drink my blood. The, the communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, is not a... Uh, you know, it's not a transubstantiation. It's not transformed magically from ordinary bread to the flesh of Christ. It's not transformed from grape juice or a little alcohol, maybe, uh, to the blood of Christ. No, the idea is that participation in the body of Christ is to participate in the, the life of Christ, and that is the body and the blood. And I think that's the, the writer of Hebrews is using those metaphors 
talking about the end of sacrifice. In other words, there is no more sacrifice. Because here is the once and for all sacrifice. And, you know, what is the nature of that sacrifice? How does it accomplish this? Because in, in, in through the body of Christ, the veil of the temple curtain has been ripped in half. We have access to the very presence of God. How so? Through the person and work of Christ. Not magically, on the basis, you know, not, not in and through. This is the problem with sacramental language. You know, the sac- uh, sacrament is the idea that it, there is a, a, a communication of God to us in and through the material elements of the Lord's Supper. No, the communication of God to us is in and through the body of Christ and the, the Holy Spirit. There's the, there's the 